This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. So JP and I had this interesting idea. We thought we wanted to do something a little more contemporaneous as applicants are on the trail. And we were lucky enough to be approached by a, a spectacular young applicant uh, who uh, volunteered for this. And just for our audience to know, um, this will be an entirely anonymized uh, interview uh, for a lot of obvious reasons. But we are really indebted to our young applicant because um, so few people that are going through this really get the contemporaneous uh, emotional feel of what it's like to be interviewed and to go through this process. So, applicant, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Hi, Dr. Wang. Hi, JP. Thank you for having me. And you're right, it's such a special experience to be able to share my feelings and opinions while it's going on. I think it, some self-reflection during the process is um, is great for me, and hopefully it's helpful to some other applicants as well. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, so let me start by by telling you a little bit about my experience. And I know, you know, it's like an old guy talking to a young guy. But I remember when I interviewed in 95, how much fun this was. I I remember, uh, you know, going to the Aquarius Bar at, in Rochester, Minnesota and getting in a fight with locals, with all the applicants fighting a bunch of locals. It was more like a, like a, it wasn't a really bad fist fight, but it was a, it was pretty engaging and, you know, going on the trail, uh, staying in hotel rooms with other folks who had the same set of concerns and aspirations. And I, you know, I look back on that three month period as one of the most special times, uh, in my life and my development. Do you think that's what's going on today? Or am I just remembering the positives or have things changed so much? No, I definitely agree. Multiple applicants and I have talked about how seeing each other over and over and again on the trail has been the best part. It's really nice to see these programs and, you know, learn from the faculty and see how the residents interact. That's a great part of it. But I think the best part has been spending time with other applicants and seeing future leaders and future neurosurgeons get together. Um, It's been quite the opposite of what I expect. I thought I'd be more focused on what the residents have to say, but uh, the fellow applicants are the best part. Yeah, I think that is a that is a great aspect of it to zero in on, especially this early in the process. I will tell you, I still have friends to this day that I consider good friends, people I reach out to when I have questions about things happening in other programs who I met on the trail, we kept in touch, you know, we tried to game it out to see if we could wind up in the same place. And, and that's something that it's interesting to think that the last few years of applicants missed out on, but don't really know what they missed because every year is a brand new process. And so even you, uh, applicant entering into the process this year, um, you're experiencing what you're experiencing and you, and you don't really in your own world feel that lack. But I do wonder if as you were entering into this process and you were getting advice from you know, the junior residents and interns and and people at your home program or whoever you've spoken to, how did they advise you to enter this in-person process? Because I imagine many of the younger residents who were closest to you and thus your main advisors have never really experienced this, right? Yeah, that's actually a great point. The interns and the PGY2s that I talked to didn't really have much to say about, you know, going in person because they'd never done it. They're very good about helping me pre- prepare for interviews with 
the appropriate lens and the appropriate answers. But the in-person experience was something they'd never experienced. I actually relied more on some of my faculty mentors who remember their days when they interviewed, kind of like what Dr. Wang mentioned. Um, trying to help me pick out, you know, the best suit or how to look professional, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I, I think about this process uh, now as I get older and older very differently, although I approached it very intuitively. And, you know, uh, Rick Komatar, program director, was was uh, asking that I uh, invite the applicants over to my house uh, on the second night here in Miami. And, and it's something that I've done informally for many, many years. And I, I do want to emphasize that. You know, when we do this, um, I, I tell the applicants that, like, my, I don't think my vote really matters in the selection process, and I prefer it that way because I see the process more as like a chance to meet your future brothers and sisters, your future peers. And so, you know, like, for example, it'll happen again this weekend, but two weekends ago, you know, I try to encourage the applicants to think instead that these are not your competitors. These are probably going to be the people you're going to be friends with for the rest of your life. Right. And, and I told them that I thought it was worth it, that I thought that even though it's expensive to do this in person, that spending that money, I mean, in the face of what neurosurgeons do in, the, in their bigger economic picture is really a pittance. Do you, do you think that's true or not? Or am I being overly rosy about the whole process? No, I definitely agree. I think personally, I always felt that this was a kind of a drop in the bucket compared to, like you said, the eventual hopeful like economic returns of being a neurosurgeon. Uh, it felt like it was really worth it to go see the programs. I think I didn't really think about the peer aspect that you mentioned until I started going through the process. But for me specifically, the the amount of money for traveling was just a necessary cost to enter this field. So let's talk a little bit then about the process and some of the things that we discussed in, in the email when you reached out, uh, reached out to us after last week's episode, because Again, as we've alluded to, Dr. Wang went through this process long ago, and I went through this process not so long ago, but before this dramatic change, where when I interviewed, it was in person, we were hopping across the country, but that was the norm and the standard, and there was no question that that was how things would be done. Um, and so now as we're shifting back to the in-person interview, there's that whole other aspect of things, which are the signals. And Dr. Wang and I spoke about it a little bit last week, but Honestly, he and I don't really have experience using them. Uh, we have some experience trying to interpret what they mean, and even then that's changing each year. So applicant, as someone who actually is using these things um, in your own match year, which is obviously huge, this is a pivotal moment in your life and you have this new tool, um, talk to us about how the signaling works from your side of things and how you were advised and how you actually did decide to deploy those. Yeah, I think first of all, the, uh, the first thing we have to mention with signals is it varies so much where you come from as an applicant in the sense that do you have a home neurosurgery department that is well known or are you coming from a smaller school? And that completely changes what signals mean to you. And are you like one of those applicants that Dr. Wang mentioned last week that had 150 publications, if I remember correctly. And eight, eight, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right, 180, I think, 186 or something like that. Yeah, see, it completely changes based off of your application. So it's very personalized. And the idea, I believe, is, is good, but um, there were a little bit of struggles, I would say, from my end, just trying to con 
conceptualize how to use them. So the advice I got when applying was to, you know, have some safeties. There's no such thing, I think, as like a real safety program, you know, for most people. But what, what people would perceive as lower tier or safety programs, I was advised to have five of those. And then I was advised to have some middle tier programs and then apply to what I would consider reaches for my application. And so I had a healthy mix. I would say I would have around five safeties, 10 middle tier programs and 10 or 15, and then five of these programs that I considered reaches. And I kind of went about it by trying to ask as many mentors and residents as possible what they thought about programs. But eventually I found that it was still quite difficult. There's just so many programs and people so know so little unless they actually did a sub-internship there or they went to medical school there. It's really hard to parse out the finer details. And 25 is a lot, but it's also still a small number. So you have to limit yourself in some way. So personally, I tried a little bit based off location and a little bit based off of how other people framed the program. Was it somewhere they worked hard? What was the character of the program? Was it like a blue collar program or a research heavy program? But I, I ultimately found that it was still quite hard to, to, to parse any of this out without actually having been to the program. Yeah. And if I could, I'd like to um, drill a little bit more into this while respecting the anonymity of, of you, your identity, where you're coming from. So if you could, in a general way, without identifying anything, describe a little bit what kind of medical school, what kind of program you're coming from, if you could, to help us contextualize those decisions you were making. And then also, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, now that you've been on the trail, you're meeting other people, what's the gossip like? What have you heard from other people who come from different sorts of medical schools, how they've been advised to use these signals and how they implemented them during this process. Because correct me if I'm wrong to contextualize this, and this was the conclusion Dr. Wang and I reached, but maybe we're wrong. These 25 signals are in a major way kind of the only effective applications you can send out, or does it at least feel that way? I think I went into the process thinking that, for sure. Uh, it felt like they were the only effective applications because you're signaling interest, at least in the programs that get a lot of applications or a very numerous number of applications, let's say. Like specifically for a place like Rush or Barrow or Miami, you're, you're getting a lot of applications. So without a signal effectively, why are you applying to that program? And specifically speaking more about the context of my medical school, I would say it is maybe a low to mid-tier med school with some challenges with the home neurosurgery department because it's located a little far from our medical school. So the relationship between the medical school and home neurosurgery department is growing, but it wasn't great when I was at M1. So some of the resources that people have with larger neurosurgery departments weren't available to me early on in my medical school career. So that made it a little challenging to get to know the ins and outs of neurosurgery. I think when you start off with a larger department, you're often at conferences potentially, and you're able to maybe interact with people from other medical schools and other departments from an early on stage. That's an experience that I didn't have. So the advising that I was, I received was to still apply broadly. I know 
the goal of the Sentinels was to reduce the number of applications and it, it, it was to make sure that everyone had an equal chance. But from my perspective, it was, I, I still applied broadly and I ended up sending out a hundred applications actually, despite having the 25 signals. And yeah, yeah go ahead, everyone. Please, I'm sorry, continue, continue, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, and I found that there were people from similar tiered medical schools or similar experiences may not have sent out 100 applications, but I know many people who sent out 70 to 90 applications, and despite the 25 signals. And then when I'm on the trail, you meet people from some of these better known med schools or better known neurosurgery departments, they're applying to around 50 programs or maybe 55 programs. And I think they were advised by their program directors or their mentors to apply to the lower number because of the, because of how well known their department is or some of the connections they have. And I think that's definitely not true for some people in my situation, which is why I applied very broadly. Yeah, I don't want to in, incite the ire in two consecutive episodes of the people in charge, but this again strikes me. And I was I was talking to a very famous neurosurgeon about this recently, about how th- this is a new kind of disparity, um, and it's it it you talk about people who have to send out more applications. It takes more time. It takes focus away from other things. It costs more money. And so it almost becomes like this race to like, you got to get in the right preschool first to get in the right high school first. And, you know, we, I think we lose talent that way. It's becoming a bit of a class society. And it bothers me greatly because there's all this talk about diminishing disparity, but I feel like it's almost inculcating it into our, into our fiber, which is really unfortunate. You think about all the great inventors that were farmers or grew up on a farm, right? In spine, like, uh, like, uh, you know, like Dr. Steffi and, and you think about, you know, Ralph Clower, these people, they're from very humble beginnings. So I, I do want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the actual process. And I'm going to give you some time to think about this because I know it's kind of a challenging question. And this is more for the folks, not not in this cycle for sure, but in coming years. Um, what is the hardest part about this interview deal? And, and I remember uh, thinking about this, like, you know, you interview with like 10 to 20 people per program, you go to 20 programs, that's 400 people. It's a lot of people to interface with. And I do want to hear JP's opinion about this too, when he interviewed a number of years ago, but I'll, I'll tell you mine to start with while you're thinking. The hardest part for me was there's a certain type of neurosurgeon. And at USC, there was a guy named Gordon McComb, who's a very famous pediatric neurosurgeon who's, who's just about retired. And we used to call him the Vulcan. Because he would just kind of look at you and say nothing, and then you would just kind of confess your soul. And these people that just kind of, right? I, you know what I'm talking about now, right? So you've met these people. They kind of just stare at you, and they look at you, and then you're not sure if you're supposed to fill the silence. And then you usually fill it like I would with something stupid, you know, uh, or irrelevant or, or off color. Uh, that was the hardest part about interviewing. Obviously, the very charismatic chairs and program directors, they're very easy to talk to because they're actually selling you their program, right? So to me, that was the hardest part, of, part about interviewing. JP, what was, what was the hardest part in your year? The hardest part for me, I think, was trying to parse out the character of the people I was interviewing. Because, you know, when you're interviewing, you're also interviewing the person interviewing you. And so I feel like, as you say, there's that type of neurosurgeon, the, the Vulcan, that's a great name. Um, but there's also 
as in any field, there are a number of people who are trying to play mind games and be psychological. And, and I always gravitate towards people that radiate a genuine sense and an honest sense. And so when I'm interviewing with someone, I wanted to get a sense of, you know, are, are you trying to play games with me? Are you trying to sell me something here? Or are we really just trying to get to know each other for 10 minutes or what have you and see if we click? And that's one of the best things about what we try to do at Rush, I think, is that uh, Dr. Byrne, our chair, when he, he comes out to start the day with a presentation, he just goes, here's the answer to every question you're going to have for me today. And he gives our operative numbers, our five-year plan, projected changes, uh, where do we rotate, every classic, do you have any questions for me questions, and he just burns all those bridges. So then when you actually come around to talk to the faculty, you have to actually talk to them and get to know each other as people. And places where there wasn't that attempt to get to know each other as people, that was my least favorite part of the process, because then it seemed much more superficial and cursory and more like we're just rubbing CVs together and seeing if any sparks come out instead of trying to actually make a human connection. Yeah, I totally agree. The majority of the interview process has been great. People want to get to know you. They want to have a conversation. There's always those people trying to play mind games, as JP said. Uh, I've had some experiences with, you know, pimping maybe and some offbeat questions. So th those are definitely the most difficult part, I would say. But in general, I would say the interview process has actually been less difficult than I thought it would be. The most difficult part has been getting on the plane every other day. <laughs> um, otherwise, everyone's been very friendly and kind of wants to get to know you as people before you're hopefully indoctrinated into neurosurgery as a resident. Uh, I would also say that sometimes the resident dinners, I didn't know what to expect when I first started out at least, but after a couple, it's seems like the residents really want to get to know you and showcase their program and hopefully just spend some time with you to tell you about their city and other things they do outside of neurosurgery, which I really, really appreciate. Yeah. So I guess if I could twist this coin a little bit, you know, what's the hardest part of the interview? That is one question, but I think another question that's tangential to this, that would be very interesting to get from someone in the process right now um, and fully anonymized, what are we doing wrong? I mean, you could pick any part of this entire process from the online application to the signaling intricacies to the cost. I mean, that's low hanging fruit, but even some of the experiences you've had in person visiting programs, you don't have to name any names. You could be as specific or as general as you like, but can you give us as a field any feedback on the process of trying to recruit interview and match you and your cohort and your friends that you've spoken with. Um, you know, we're on this side of the fence and every year that goes by, as we've said, we get further and further from your perspective and we lose something like that, especially when the process itself is changing and getting more, more, you know, foreign to the experience that I had and Dr. Wang had. So what can you tell us from someone in the trenches right now about how we can do this better? I think that in general, I really enjoy the in-person aspect. That's just my personal opinion as an applicant. I know some other people may have different ideas based off of 
you know, the cost and other restrictions, they may like Zoom better. But in general, I think people will seem to like the in-person interviews. And that's, that's something that getting back to that for all programs, I think would be super helpful, whether applicants realize it or not, just to get the full character of the program. I've done some Zoom interviews and they just don't feel the same as the in-person interviews that I've done. Um, I know there's some GME requirements that are more, not the department's issue, but like an institutional issue, but hopefully those all get changed in the future. And two, I think the thing that I find most difficult still is the signals. I think with time, hopefully people are able to get a handle on what actually, you know, what, what the signal can do for you. And maybe some of these programs that people don't know about are able to showcase themselves before. I don't know what a solution would be, whether it's like an open house where there's like a Zoom thing for prior to interview season when people are signaling around application time so that people get to know their program better. I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who's not from like an elite medical school or like the most elite of applicants who can signal, you know, some of the top 30, 35 programs per se. And that that's all they have to think about because those are really well-known programs, but maybe some of the smaller programs that are gems in between that we don't know about, and it's kind of a risk to take one of your 25 signals on, but you need to find a program to signal. I think somehow so showcasing those programs better would be really beneficial to applicants. Yeah, we tried to do that as, as uh, JP stated um, in, uh, I think it was last year or the year before JP, when we mm-hmm. tried to get all the program directors on. And, uh, and I, I, I hear the concern. I mean, it's like you're, you're forced to signal before you know that much about these places, right? Um, and that, that's difficult. There are so many different programs and the programs are so good at putting their best foot forward. So let me, let me ask you about what you've liked about places. Like, what are the things that you hear about this program or you hear the program saying, you're like, wow, that sounds like the kind of place I want to spend the next seven years at. Yeah, that's a great question. I really enjoy when the residents are interact well and at the dinner, they are seem to be having fun. They seem to be friends. It doesn't seem like they're distant. I think that makes it feel like a place I want to be at, a relatively happy environment. The hours are hard. The work is hard. But if you get along with your co-residents, I think that makes it a lot better. Two, I really enjoy when the chairs, PDs, the faculty want to get to know you as people. Uh, there's some interview experiences I've had where it felt like, felt like it was a cursory 10-minute interview where they're just asking me some of these questions that they could have got from my application. I understand expanding upon some of the things I put on there, but if you're essentially just going to ask me to recite my CV back to you, it doesn't seem like you're interested in getting to know the applicants. So anyone who's actually made an effort to read some of the file and then ask some neurosurgery related questions, but Instead, try to get to know you as a person, what drives you, what's your character, and what you want to bring to the program, I think really, really stood out to me. And this is something that I didn't think about before I started interviewing, but the first time someone asked me, what do you want in a program, I, I just didn't expect them to care. You know, I didn't expect them to ask me that question. It's something that I've thought about, but when, when they asked that question, it kind of showed me that they, they actually care about what I think as an applicant. Yes, I mean, that's a key question, and, and it's something good for you to reflect on, but also it, it 
like I said, the match is a match. So it's good for both sides to know what they're looking for. Um, well, applicant, I know we want to respect your time. Obviously, you're extraordinarily busy and who knows where you are in the country right now. But while we have you, this is kind of a unique opportunity, as we've been saying, to interview someone going through this process while it's happening. And so I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on the question of sub-eyes. And so you've already given us kind of a general sense of what kind of school you're coming from. Um, and we could maybe imagine what the sub-eye and externship experience was like for you. But perhaps if you could, again, protecting your identity as much as possible, talk a little bit about the advice you were given for externships this year, what kinds of places you went, and how you think that impacted not just where you applied, but as we've been saying, how many places you applied to, how you deployed the signals. Um, and again, any kind of gossip or, or sense of word on the street you've had from other applicants for that same issue. Because these, these externships, as we were saying last week, are becoming more and more of a commodity, not just to land the highly coveted uh, sub-I at you know, the given ivory tower, but getting the letter from that spot. So what kind of advice did you receive about that? And then what did you actually do? Yeah, I mean, everyone, I think, is advised to first try a program that suits their fit. That's what I got from my home program, at least. They told me to try and do an externship at a place that I think I would fit in and maybe have some ideas towards whether I'd be happy in that location. Personally, for me, I just wanted the most broad experience possible. One of my sub-eyes was at my home, and my second sub-eye, actually, I took a research year. So I ended up doing one there, and that proved very fruitful. But my third sub-eye, I wanted something a little bit different, and I wanted something at a very large hospital. And it turns out I did it at one of these places where there's seven, six, seven, eight sub-eyes a month. So there were a lot of people there and I met many people, but I didn't realize that the, how many people were actually sub-eyeing at this place. So over the course of five, six months, maybe there's probably like almost 35, 45 people that rotate through this institution. And after that, I realized, wow, like how different are our letters going to look when we have 40 people coming through and how beneficial is that actually? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think we, we brought that up on the, on the last episode. And I think that as an applicant, you know, you always um, want to pick those sub eyes very carefully. I, I, you know, I've encouraged everybody since I was a medical student to do as many sub eyes as possible, just, on that eventuality. But I think it's, it's such an important message to get out there and there's such conflicting information. And then I'm going to ask you, didn't your, your medical school Dean say, no, don't do any sub eyes or do just one, right? They always want to get you to take more psychiatry classes or OBGYN, right? That's the message, right? Yeah. I mean, that definitely exists. I think one of the, the interesting parts I've seen as I reflect more on the sub eye season is the SNS recommendation to do, three sub-eyes, I believe that comes from a place so that you're not taking spots away from other applicants. Um, but there are still a fair number of people on the trail. I wouldn't say 50%, but maybe around 20% of the applicants I've met have done four sub-eyes instead of three. And it makes me wonder like, hey, I, I wish I did a fourth one just to get another letter or potentially another experience with 
a program, you know, like a program doesn't know you as well as if you were there for a month. And that that's something people have to decide for themselves, whether they're going to do three or four. But that's another consideration I say. I personally stayed away from doing the four because I was like, wow, these SNS recommendations, I should probably follow them. What if a program doesn't interview me because I did four instead of three? Hmm. Well, um, applicant, I just want to thank you again for your time coming on uh, during this busy, busy, busy period of your life and the willingness to share your experiences um, anonymously, of course. I do want to point out for our listeners that this was an entirely organic interview that happened. We put out the call last week that if anyone wanted to share their experiences, please write to us. And this brave applicant did. So if anyone wants to share their experiences as well, be you an applicant now, a medical student looking at the match in a few years, or, or someone on the interviewing side of the table that wants to comment from your own perspective, please, the door is open and we love hearing from listeners, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com will always reach us. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, uh, or you could always just email myself or Dr. Wang directly. But um, we really do love hearing from you. And if you have something to say, we will help it get to our listeners so that everyone can share in these experiences and these impressions of this ongoing and evolving process. I will also say that this is not a plant and this is a real applicant who strongly favors an in-person experience, as do myself and Dr. Wang. So uh, hear it from the people themselves going through the process. It means a lot to meet people face to face. With that, applicant, back to the trail with you. Best of luck, best wishes. We're always here if you need more advice uh, or questions from us. But with that, thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.